Welcome to Creative Welly, episode 30. You're listening to the audio version of the video podcast. My name is DK. I'm the creative producer and founder of Creative Welly. And I want to give a big shout out for John O'Tucker over at Empire Films, who produces the video podcast. You can find that on creativewelly.com. It's unique. It's wonderful looking. Please check it out. And also a big shout out to David at Flash Dog Studio for hosting us as well. In this episode, you get to listen to Pamela Bell, an innovation consultant with a depth of expertise, shall we say, in the construction and built and architectural environments. Also joining her is Joss Ford, head of business development at Akama, who's a software IT website development service. We get into that, so don't worry about it. In this podcast, we speak to everything from social housing, to government, to snowboarding, to the Olympics, to construction, to homes, and strategy and leadership. Enjoy. Okay, let's start with, what do you most value in your friends? To get us warmed up and we're away. Oof. What do you most value in your friends? See, he was lucky. <laughs> okay, I'll go first. Um, sure. I, uh, I think about this a lot in terms of uh, growing up and how we travel around the world and how that's mm. gone away. So uh, some of the friends I'm thinking of uh, live on the other side of the world and yeah. we can't be friends in that practical close, close by situation and um, I think a lot of the great people you meet you know you can connect on Facebook and immediately go back to that amazing experience whether you were backpacking or you know in a job together in some tiny office or something when you were younger so yeah I think uh, I think for friends it's uh, that sort of shared experience that can uh, take you back but I find the good friendships you can also catch up with someone years later and um, you know still have a real enthusiasm for Straight back into it right for, like it's time. Yeah, that's right. That's a cool answer. What about you? Hmm. What do you value in your friends? I have to say I value loyalty in my friends. I value Lovely. someone being on my side. Yeah. Whatever the debate is. <laughs> of course, <laughs> robust debate's good. Mm-hmm. And every now and then it's good to have someone to, you know. Challenge. Yeah, challenge you. But I think at the end of the day, with all the, res- you know, all the crazy things that we've got going on, you just want someone on your side. Yeah, team. Yeah. My stomach's going crazy. It's okay. You're right. Yeah, I'm go. fine. Should I've just eaten. Peanuts? No, I've eaten. <laughs> Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why. I can that's hear a it. Good question. Yeah, fine. The value stuff is interesting because for me, it's time. Having the time. Just spending time. Someone spending who makes time. time for you. Yeah. Mm. Who not prioritizes you because there's other priorities in the world, mm. but at least prioritizes you enough to spend that time, whether it be reaching out that you haven't spoken to for a while, hey, just checking in, mm-hmm. you know, you're still alive, still kicking, you know, mm-hmm. or literally spending the time with you to jump on the phone, jump on our Skype, or, you know, in olden days, hang about together, you know, and do some things. So. What is it about the spending time? That it's that love language, right? We've all got different uh, love yeah. languages. Mm-hmm. And for yeah. me, time is one of my big love languages, mm-hmm. so spending time with someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and action, mm-hmm. I suppose. Because it's our scarcest resource. So it's Maybe, our most yeah. precious. Yeah. You know, um, kids at primary school learn about the love languages, only they're taught in terms of animal characters. I thought it was so interesting. Is when this I a new thing? Or is this, well, not in my primary school experience, but same, yeah. <laughs> I have two children, 12 and 15. Yeah. And when I talk to them about the love languages, 
um, they said, oh yeah, we know about that. And then I can't remember what it was, but it was like the monkey, the pelican, the parakeet, whatever. And I was like, oh wow, okay. You guys are totally across this and you're not even intermediate. So they were taught through tropes almost like, and just taught through kind of personas, but animal personas. Yes, animal personas. I assume the monkey was a listener. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what they were. But But I had to learn that the hard bloody way, right? Uh, well, <laughs> the love yeah. language you went through a few monkeys did you? Uh, yeah exactly when I was a pelican <laughs> and a monkey and they just didn't go on that's a beautiful way of putting it but that's how you learn isn't it when shit goes wrong yeah, yeah. I guess but it would have been nice to have a heads up <laughs> about how disconnected people can be sometimes and uh, expectations would you do anything if you had a heads up if you really knew what was really involved down okay. the track would you start or go into anything Business or relationship. Anything. Business. Any challenging situation, if you knew just how much it was going to spit you out. (laughs) I think it could paralyze you, but no, we do these things because we need, you you know, I mean, how many people choose to, you know, remove themselves from society, you know, like, and I guess there are probably people who are more detached, but, Mm. you know, this is kind of part of life, you know, it's a, it's much more of a need for us as social animals. It's much more meaningful than kind of what we eat or, you know, how we get to work or, you know, those... I guess you generalise to say, I thought, relationships, but also starting a business or mm. you know, going to work, what you choose to do. You know, those are things that are about, you know, your own kind of journey. So mm-hmm. I think um, I think when you get to, like, a fork in the road and you need to find something more meaningful, usually that's because what you're doing isn't kind of filling you up right there we go yeah hmm. how much then do you find that relationships especially personal relationships like friendship let's put it mm. in there um <laughs> uh, you didn't know so this doesn't what? turn into the <laughs> well no i was gonna ask <laughs> from a perspective of then collaborating and working together. yeah like i like working with my friends although they say you shouldn't i've never really worked with my family so i can't really mm. speak to that but mm. they say like business and friendship Mm-hmm. oil and water stuff but I, I'm opposite I want to work with people I like to spend time with and they become my friends have you mm-hmm. had the same experiences in your careers 100% yeah yeah or can you separate yeah I think I think we change a lot as we age and okay. you acquire new new roles I think for me I found it interesting um, so my kids are a lot younger and I've been thinking a lot about friendship and how you don't have time for a lot of what you used to do and yeah. a lot of that was an interesting phase for me when I was just getting started which was sort of like having beers and having you know sharing mutual gripes like how hard things are going or, or that and people who are in the same situation and that's great friendship at one level but not all of those have yeah. lasted when I don't have time to grab a beer in the pub gotcha. so I, I think yes but also your work mask you sort of have to carry it because um, you know, you might have personal relationships and friendships who really couldn't give the slightest toss about your work life or yeah. anything. So you sort of have to manage different levels of that. That's uh, what being an adult is all about, isn't it? Adulting, managing those things. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's I guess so. Because right? well, you evolve. It, it depends, and it depends at what level you want of professionalism. But I think when you go and work alongside someone and you form a team, like ultimately, hopefully, you retain the best sides of friendship but you also have to let go of a lot of other things you know you're about pushing yourselves being ambitious 
getting through like difficult learning. Um, whereas a lot of your friendship is about other stuff. Yeah, good point. And then these little humans come along, like you just mentioned, yeah. you know, which have an impact then on your potential to hang around with friends in different circumstances. So, have yeah. you got new little humans? Uh, three and five. So okay, newish. Not quite. So, yeah, <laughs> my business partner's uh, got a um, uh, one younger than one. So well, I was just saying this morning he had a rough night, and I'm like, yep, you I, can empathize. I can empathize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, glad to be out of that. Yeah, Yeah, good to get through that tunnel. Um, On the family friends thing, um, I was in business with my aunt and uncle for about 10 years, which was really interesting. Um, We kind of started something, you know, as a startup within their kind of expertise. It was a ski and snowboard clothing company called Fruition back in the um, 90s. But um, that was a really interesting experience because definitely... My aunt and I became really close, like we'd be ringing each other obviously multiple times a day um, and I was probably closer to her in that period than even my own parents, you know, we're in really tight mm-hmm. contact and um, there was always a mutual respect. It was a very clear boundary setting process so I always knew that the relationship had to win over any work decision or conversation mm-hmm. or potential conflict. So nice. that for me was a really easy defining way you know to get through that work relationship it was really interesting it would have been different with a friend yeah Yeah, with a friend potentially you know you can bust up right but I knew that busting up wasn't an option so there was either careful negotiation Mm. or acquiescence or you know in the right way yeah that was fascinating did you have a conversation about those ground rules explicitly or was it sort of implicit um, no, because I was obviously the younger of the two. I probably mm-hmm. had a lens more around, um, you know, sales and marketing and the customer, and she probably had more of a lens around manufacture and distribution. And mm-hmm. somehow we kind of melded, but we were absolutely, you know, bootstrapping, very, very tight, thrifty. So we didn't have marketing budgets mm-hmm. or you know anything like that. So it was really interesting. I think we were in operation for about five or six years before we even had business cards. Or, Is that right? Yeah, yeah. But Is it, was, it still going today, it that brand? Well, or? we sold it on, and I don't know what happened to it. You know, okay. you kind of get past the cutting your baby off, and then you try and not to look on it at what well. happens. Yeah. And then you have that conversation, mm. will we buy it out of the gutter? When they, you know, would we buy it in a third of what we sold it for, you know, if yeah. it went really badly? No, we can't go back there. Because yeah. that's that... Um, what we're talking about before, you know, once you've done something once, you wouldn't go there again. Yeah. I think of it as the wet togs thing, because that's how it was. Um, and I'm sure you boys can relate, um, putting on <laughs> wet togs, um, but maybe a wet wetsuit. <laughs> because that's how it was described to me when someone said, would I go back and do the Olympics again? And yeah. I said, no way. And that's when they said, oh, it's a bit like putting on wet togs. And I was like, oh, OK, yep, yeah, that fits. I'll use that. It works. What, what, Meaning just a bit icky. But what was so negative about the Olympics for you? Uh, it was just really, really hard. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was great in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and incredibly challenging and difficult and, and mm. lots of others. You know, most, most things that are slightly crazy are, aren't they? Real well, mixture absolutely. of... To compete at the Olympics, yeah. you've got to be in a certain, I suppose, headspace and physical bracket 
already. You've so got you're, to be, yeah, fairly focused. Yeah, so already <laughs> you're on, on, on a, uh, you're in the minority, shall we say, in the global populace uh, then. But then probably then be thrown into that kind of competition cauldron as well. Oh, the, it, yeah. Um, I guess that this challenging stuff and the exciting stuff is that, yeah. so I went for snowboarding in 1998. Yeah. And it was the first time snowboarding was at the Olympics. And there was a lot of okay. turmoil inside snowboarding about, oh, pfft, Olympics, Schmimpics, we we're all about right. creativity and blah, mm. blah, blah. And we were all on this entrepreneurial wave, really, at the start mm. of the sport. So we were trying to figure out, okay, do we do World Cup? Do we do national teams? We're just kind of making stuff up as we go. And then we get to, you know, the Olympics and people didn't think we were serious. And even I remember some guy in the New Zealand team saying, oh, you guys aren't really athletes, you know, that kind of wow. stuff. Okay. But, so, you know, you're feeling a bit weird and mm. then your sport's a little bit weird about it and, you know, and you're there with all the best athletes in winter sport in the world. That's pretty overwhelming. You mm. just think, what am I doing here? This mm. is right, so I get it. overwhelming. Right. Yeah. And plus, of course, everything you do has to go into that thing, right? Mm. It's a, it, well, you know why you're waking up each morning yeah. for a while. Yeah. Such a pressure cooker, though, I would imagine. But then again, if it, it did it... In terms of being the first, uh, first games to have that type of sport, yeah. Was it also? Yeah, can, you just mentioned that it was kind of almost dismissed as. Not oh, for sure, and the it, physicality. It, and it didn't obvious. help when um, I used to train with the Canadians. It didn't help with one of the Canadians, Ross Rebecliati, tested positive for marijuana right. after winning his gold medal, and that's when there was a whole conversation. It was just like, oh. God Those sake. guys and girls are just doing it. Yeah, yeah. mm, you know, we were only just scraping through into the Olympic space and then it opened yeah. that space up. Yeah. Anyway. What a time in terms of framing it then around that business stuff, because that was when that business you just mentioned oh, yeah. started around yeah. that time, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. We were making the ski and snowboard clothing, the fruition stuff. Yeah. That was a really good um, experience. That's but it sounds so, like so you're in business with a friend. Sorry. Oh, uh, as opposed to family. No, I was, just, I was just interested, like you talked about fruition, but you also talked about not going back. Um, going to the Olympics, I mean, that period after must be really, ch- I'm sure really it's challenging, challenging for athletes. Yeah. Um, and so you chose to go into business. Like what was, uh, was, it, on the, was it on the table to go for another was, four years? It was or? all kind of happening at the same time. I see. Yeah, yeah, it was all overlapping. The business stuff was to stay alive here uh-huh. a bit. Um, yeah, and also to because you have to pay to be an athlete yes. a bit. You know, it's not exactly self-supporting, although now there's a lot more structure. Mm. There was no structure behind snowboarding at an administrative level, although we're, there were many passionate people that were very helpful. Mm. Um, so it's quite different for young kids now. Mm. Yeah. Where were you living, like most of the year? Well, winters in um, central Otago, mm. Queenstown, Monica and summers in Canada, and then comps were all over, you know, Japan, States, Europe. Yeah. So at the Great. end... And, and if I had, yeah. was having a really shit time, I'd call home, and my dad would say, just be a tourist. Yeah. And it was such good nice. advice. Yeah, there's always a fallback, right? That's a nice... Right. So it wasn't like there was a cut and dried, I'm done with this. Uh, you did the Olympics, then there was a period where you were doing other professional snowboarding. Oh, right. A, tra- yeah, I'm just sort of... I know what you mean. Like that mental come down from such a big event and then you mm. deciding not to go back. 
Yeah, so there's lots of stuff in there, isn't there? Because mm. either the decision's made for you by like an injury, mm. or you make the decision through an event, just like we make a decision with university by graduating, oh, now we're done with university, right? Mm. Well, so the Olympics is this nice little formed kind of end point. Mm. But I went for another year, because I was like, man, I've deser- I deserve to have some fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yeah. I just want to ride board across and free ride and, you know, because other people were out there filming and doing fun stuff like that. Mm. But um, what happened that year after? Oh, I blew my knee out. Ah, yeah. Yeah, a year after the Olympics. So that helped me go, I'm done. <laughs> that must have been, was that such a harrowing experience for you? Or was it like Having a relief? From a perspective of you were already kind of going, I need to have some fun. I'm turning my back against, not turning, but I'm moving more into the fun rather than the purely competitive. So when you had the injury, looking back upon reflection, was it timely? Oh, I 100% think injuries happen for a reason. Right. I 100% think injuries are your body sending you a message and you just have to decide whether you're reading it or not. But because we're not on DK's couch, I won't go into (laughs) why I had that accident, except to say that it got me out of a bad personal relationship. Fair enough. Yeah, sent me home. Okay, thank you for being honest. Gave me some distance. Yeah. So it was good, but yeah. So I've got a question for, that. for both of you, sorry. Mm. Um, just to get us a little bit in terms of now rather than past. Good. How do you describe what you do, and more importantly, why you do it? I'm going to start with you, please, mm. Josh. That, that's really interesting, because uh, as Head of Business Development, uh, I am going through a bit of a phase to uh, separate what I do from what the business does, and generally I'm introducing the business and separating those two mm. out. So, okay. and we're also going through a process of figuring that out. Um, so we, uh, so Akama is a software development company. We have designers, we have project managers, um, uh, great open source developers. Um, and then uh, three years ago, we merged with a Melbourne-based firm. Uh, both firms have quite a strong um, commitment to social values in terms of how we operate and the clients that we deliver for. Um, and also why we are doing that work. Mm-hmm. Um, but through doing that, we've had to um, recognise that we're not the same company we were in the past, and also that it's a very interesting thing to write down on a piece of paper what this new thing we are is, <laughs> as well as then having your own kind of personal journey yeah. um, in terms of, of thinking of it as a business or your own personal goals and what you want to get out of it. Mm. So, uh, so I'm Head of Business Development. I... Uh, am, I, I suppose, at heart a relationship builder. I'm really curious uh, about uh, how work works and um, I am most days working on looking at how to help organisations do the right thing and um, I guess my role is that I have a lot of um, specialists in our team uh, but I have to um, introduce the relationship, kind of put that package together okay. and always be supporting that the work we're doing, like the contracts, the projects and things, you know, are overcoming the right challenges. Mm. So that might seem a bit abstract, but um, I, I guess uh, when I was in London, I was working in a bank in the global financial crisis. Um, I'd already previously decided that I didn't particularly like my career or where I was working. Okay. Um, quit my job in New Zealand. I rode a motorcycle for a year. Uh, and then I ended up in the global financial crisis right in the heart of it, um, really having a job for jo- a job's sake, just to right. pay the bills, pay the credit card, having had this incredible adventure. 
So, um, so that really set me up for a reset going, hey, um, uh, I really want things to be more practical. I want mm. to understand the impact that I'm doing. And um, that's led me to where I am today. Well, I met you at Inspiral mm. all those years ago. If you remember Inspiral, do you know what I'm good? So it's kind of a collective co-op of good social entrepreneurs, shall we say, or with social good in mind to create businesses slash charities, organizations, movements. Yep. But Is it still going? Kind of, yep. but not as or what it's we... it all these other amazing... Yeah, like we, I knew it as the hub. It was a physical manifest, wasn't it? It was like co-working yeah. before co-working was a cool thing, right? Mm. We all came together <laughs> yeah. and it was wicked. Co-working without the fit out. There's that, yeah. <laughs> Barely paying the rent. <laughs> yeah, with lots of kind of fudgy, cool yeah. stuff. Um, but it's still going in terms of there's still a collection of you still operating. There's yes. a network. Yes. You're all mm. still connected. Mm-hmm. And it's great, Did, right? Yeah, cool. So in terms yeah. of that, imbuing those values... You touched upon, you know, making sure we're doing the right things, making sure we're connected to the right mm. value ethics base. So, so what does that mean? How does that manifest? Like, yeah, uh, great question. <coughs> I think, I think for me, I was probably doing something that a lot of uh, young professionals are doing, which was looking for more meaning in their work. Mm. Um, and I had a cup of coffee with Joshua Bile. I spent about three years being mistaken for the wrong Joshua, <laughs> and I said, "Oh, so what are you doing?" And he said, I um, am someone in my personal life who's deeply committed to making change in our communities. Um, And I pay the bills by working two days a week as a freelance software developer. Mm. And I'm bringing in people to a network who are going to do the same thing with their behavior. I'm going to find them lucrative working opportunities. And then we're going to work together in a collective to create transformative, positive social change uh, ventures. And um, I said to him, um, okay, well, are you are you interested in what I'm doing? And he said yes. He said yes to everyone. Um, <laughs> and I said I don't quite understand the shape of this, but I think I can help. And um, I was one of the first uh, first essentially uh, non software developers to join. Um, and it was a really intriguing explanation uh, exploration of mm. uh, such a powerful driver to do work that has meaning and contributes to our societies um and i and it was a really positive experience but it was a very challenging one because it had absolutely no structure so you know Mm. it it could say yes to everything because it wasn't really committed to uh what that looked like except in an individual project so it was like this great community but it just um yeah didn't didn't sort of have a didn't have rules necessarily everything was being co-developed as Mm. it went and i suppose it was an interesting dichotomy because it was this beacon of really interesting opportunity, social enterprise, doing really radical experimentation um, with a little bit of a dichotomy that most of the people contributing were delivering uh, their, their source of income and money through mm. kind of freelancing, con- contracting, consulting, day job type of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I guess for us, it came down to, it's great to have a project that promises to deliver social value uh, and there were some incredible um, experiments within Inspiral, but at the same time, we wanted to be more committed to that. We wanted to have a team. We had a lot of people who were really excited about what we were doing, saying, you know, let me know when you have jobs for people with mortgages. And it was that transition from being sort of, gotcha. you know, noodles and ramen in a share house and, you know, um, this sort of uh, sidestepping um, uh, 
uh, sidestepping the more business model structure. Mm. And ultimately, not everything at Inspira went down that path. There was mm. like the Lumio people who went a really different route. Yeah. Uh, but um, it was a good vehicle for us to, like you say, do that sort of interesting mix-up of things like cheap desks and a co-working space where you could come and um, figure out what you were doing. Um, with uh, then deciding we actually wanted to be more committed and we founded uh, Rabbit. I met my co-founder through that, That's Brecken. Right, yeah. um, uh, so we wanted to set up a business that still had those social values gotcha. at the core. Um, and in those days, we were going to do great tech in terms of building startup products. We were going to do great tech for the charitable sector that failed immediately <laughs> as a business. Uh, and as that's grown and we've grown, we've become more and more focused on large organisations and systems like government. Um, mm. And it was interesting walking alongside the, the Lumio people who, uh, and also this week, so this is a bit of a tangent, but uh, there was the Occupy movement and Joshua with his radically open um, openness to very alternative things went down to the Occupy movement and I thought they were quite, quite loopy listening to you know whatever the media reporting was. And then he invited them around for lunch. <laughs> and this sort of group of, loose group of um, Occupy people that were the genesis of exploring Lumio were very different to, um, you know, the type of work and change we wanted to mm. see within the world. And, and I suppose for us, um, we wanted to make sure that if we were going to achieve change, it was going to be through organisations that, uh, that, that, are, that are here. It's going to be mm. reforming tax systems and boring stuff and it's going to be you know making change in healthcare systems by solving the part where when you're having a mental health crisis they don't lose your information and yeah. force you to fill out the form it's going to be solving really boring problems mm. and we've become more and more attracted to those types of uh, reform type of opportunities um, and for us that's a big part of why we want to grow the business and the type of work we want to attract and deliver i can still see the through line yeah. from where you started to what you just described, mm. you know, but it's almost matured, shall we say, to understand that actually there are some boring systems that need to work because of the outcome that they provide. Mental health is the obvious one mm. you just described. It's like, of course, that needs to work in a very boring, systematic way, and we need clever people to make sure it does and to ensure it does and that it doesn't fall over and stuff like yeah. that. So it's fascinating to hear you describe that mm. transition. I think it's also important that those were choices. So I'm talking about right. Lumio, who went down a really different path. And there was a difficult part in those early days where, because we had all of these people and they were great people, mm. it was difficult to make choices that would exclude other people's desires and values. And that's why it worked out quite well. And I think Inspiral has, I think, matured to being a good network. You've got great personal and professional relationships. Indeed. And some of those people are doing projects and working in collectives and mm. experimental fashions. But Inspiral, at its core, in, in my opinion, has been really good where people's kind of business vehicles have been outside of that remit. And you haven't had that mm. uh, getting everyone in a collective on side to make more boring decisions. <laughs> um, and I think uh, Lumio have themselves uh, figured out their own structure, but it took them a number of years to get there. Yeah. Course, it, yeah. It's a classic conflict, isn't it, between the creativity and the business. Mm. Yeah. But DK commented on that journey or storyline, and you can see where your values have stayed intact. You've mm. just found more pragmatic ways to apply them to affect more people. 
but what happened to the piece about um, helping charities or is, is that still something you guys revisit or think well, about it's something we doing apply, in the future? Yeah, so yeah. it's something we apply probably a different lens to, which is how do we think about impact and how do we do it in the right way without getting into philosophy debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say what we found was we have to build a business. We have to build a place that's sustainable, that won't run out of steam, where projects won't fall over. Mm-hmm. And you also have to uh, work for customers who actually want what you have to deliver. So um, it's a real challenge within charitable organisations. And, and in those early days, we were saying, hey, we can build your IT system so much better. Um, but they were in an organisational dynamic that said, I have literally no money to invest in the future. I'm contracted for service delivery to do this down to the dollar. I have absolutely no, nothing to bring to the financial table here. Mm. And so uh, for us, um, we do work with non-profit organisations and charities. Um, but for us, it was about doing elements of that, but also um, trying to do it in a more systematic sort of way. So what I mean by that is, and, and I got pretty well connected through like f- philanthropic relationships, and they were talking about a big problem that happens when people want to help with charitable organisations. They say, hey, we've got a whole bunch of volunteers. We're here to help. What can we do? And they say, well, you could paint the fence over there. That would be useful. We need a little bit of maintenance. And then they call up next year and they say, hey, we're here to paint the fence again. And they say, well, that's not really what we need. What we need is your money because we have professionals here that could really make the best use of this and untrained volunteers can't achieve so much. Mm. So for us, it's been trying to go, well, what can tech do that's Mm. sustainable? Uh, And um, for us, uh, for example, uh, we've been working with the New Zealand Sign Language uh, Dictionary Project. It's a collaboration with Victoria University. Mm -hmm. Um, It is funded um, and we've shifted our approach from, okay, well, not every project is gonna be purely profit, but perhaps we'll help our clients find the grant money, perhaps we'll help them do the product roadmap planning, perhaps we'll do it on more of a shared investment sort of model so it'll Mm. cover the bases. Mm. Um, And then from time to time we'll do something generously. Mm. Uh, But it's not in the sort of must-haves part of Mm -hmm. how we look at what we achieve. Yeah. And also, sorry if I'm talking too long, uh, there's a real fallacy in thinking that your for-profit work doesn't have impact. Mm. And that's where... It, we can really challenge ourselves to be a business that's, uh, we're not a social enterprise, but I really think there's a huge space in terms of social business mm-hmm. that delivers business that's probably profitable, but definitely delivers big returns uh, in terms of social change. And that's kind of more of our vision and more of our ambition. So, so I'm really curious yeah. about how you measure and talk about that social impact. Yeah. Well, um, I had a note actually to ask you about complexity and that's one of our challenges at the moment. Yeah. But uh, we were talking about that with the company in the last couple of weeks Mm -hmm. and um, it talks about the types of risks that we'll take and the types of opportunities we'll look for in our briefs. So last year we've been working with the World Health Organization and Uh, We were lucky enough to um, sell a product into that organisation and it's been surprising for us as an organisation with an, um, sorry, as a company, 
to have to remind our team how much impact the World Health Organization actually has. And that it might seem like a code base and it's challenging and it's hard work, but it's like, look at the implied social impact. Mm -hmm. If we can help that organization communicate better, capture its data better, keep things secure, do the boring things. No one inside of Karma has the professional experience to be um, an expert scientist in infection prevention. However, the impact that we can achieve by helping them deliver more at a massive global level is profound. Massive. But you also can't get there without having a business that's reliable, that's going to get through the risk side of things, that's exporting, and a lot of that validates the journey that we've been going along. Mm -hmm. Great response. Yeah, they don't want to do with their business with anyone who's not going to be there next week. Mm. Yeah. Also, it's been a challenging challenge for us to separate out our personal internal story because they actually mm-hmm. want to work with a company that's safe and a little bit boring, <laughs> not necessarily vibrant, creative. I can completely change your project brief, yeah. but with more of a long-term perspective, uh-huh. you know, we believe we can achieve that. Yeah. yeah. I'm really curious um, about how clients know what they want Mm. in terms of how they find you. I'm wondering, are they asking themselves, what what questions are they asking themselves that you're solving? And do they know what's wrong when they come to you? Or, I mean, I'm just wondering how they would wake up one day and they know their answer is to Mm. reach into this strategic social impact software space. So what do you find are the their kind of common questions or problems to solve? Yeah, great question. I, I would say in spite of doing a lot of work trying to predict that, it still comes down to relationships mm-hmm. and where projects really develop comes from trustworthiness, having some latent recognition in the market and then doing the most you can from that briefing stage conversation. Mm-hmm. And so I think we are putting a lot of effort when we do meet people who have a problem to focus on helping them see that impact aspect and that helps them maybe decide to progress something with us or not. So is it those previous stories, the case studies, the word of mouth, that, oh, I heard you did that for those folks. Can you help us with our one? I think it's a similar problem, might be different. I I think so. I also think it's a vibe. Um, So in Melbourne, Mm -hmm. we've got a very different customer expectation, for example. And the social values in terms of how you operate is a hugely contested space. Uh-huh. So we actually have to think through quite carefully. You're being polite. You're saying they're much else. more educated <laughs> about understanding how they need to have social impact in their suite. Uh, sometimes. Sometimes it's just gloss and frill. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, we've, we've, we've got a great design team in terms of what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I can feel a little less confident alongside advertising and brand agencies Mm -hmm. I need to remember that we don't deliver Mm. visual identity and creative services Mm -hmm. in terms of messaging and communications that's fine they can be a b corp and deliver those types of services Mm -hmm. what we are about is more of the human-centered design and uniquely helping them be able to build that platform and launch it Mm -hmm. and having really good collaboration conversations with some of those organizations who have social purpose but maybe are frustrated because they can't deliver and execute. Mm. They can't find an IT company who sort of gets where they're coming from. There's a lot more space to, to sort of work from that perspective. I like that you use gloss and frills because, you know, of course we all use greenwashing a lot in mm. that sustainability space. What's the equivalent term in a social impact space? 
do you think? Or do we have a, a washing term? <laughs> I, Social washing. No, we, yeah. What is it? Yeah, you're right. Social washing is just a whole other subject. Yes. That's <laughs> well, what yeah, we used I, to do I, pre-COVID. I think it's a real challenge. A lot of a lot of businesses who are out there in creative ser- services are deeply conflicted mm. because they're selling a message without substance, mm-hmm. and it's a challenge for everyone. You know, at the moment you start unpacking it, it's like, well, I drove here. I didn't buy an electric vehicle. You know, I like to ride my bike. I get to feel more virtuous. Like we we all have levels of hypocrisy. Mm. Um, I think for me and and um, you know some of that wider space. It's less worrying about that, and it's less necessarily trying to be an authority on mm-hmm. social enterprise or certification. And for me, it's more about trying to sort of hone in on where we can help and rec- help people recognise when that's the case. Right. Do you yeah. think that's the nub of strategy, is helping businesses live their purpose? Probably. Yeah. yeah. So you help to bring purpose to life. Yeah. That's just tagline. That's your new tagline right there. <laughs> No, I'm like serious. No, 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 you can't afford it. My or write it down for you. <laughs> I'm going to steal it. It's also about. But, but that, it's but also I've about been struggling creating. with this stuff too. About yeah, strategy. I think it's also about creating. How do people purpose. know they need strategy help? They haven't got like a strategy. Like, oh, I'm cut. I need my, you know, yeah. like a doctor strategy band aid. Whatever. They don't know that it's strategy that's at the heart of yes. what's not working as mm. well as it could. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I think it's yeah. I think it's a challenge for. Um, yeah, I think it's a, a real challenge for consultants um, mm. who deal with complexity because the problem is sort of meaningless unless you're affected by it. Mm. You know, like I, I yeah. you were looking, so yeah, I was interested in your background in architecture because uh, back yeah. in Inspiral days, I, I met a lot of people who were really passionate about the built environment, mm. and I know nothing about it. I'm the worst, even artist. I couldn't build one of those little models, and yet they were really um, talking about very similar creative concepts but apply it in a totally different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was talking about you know, building software and mm-hmm. you know, stop thinking about it, just start coding. Which... Oh yeah, architecture is one of those words yeah. that's been subverted into that software space. Yeah, yeah. The architecture yeah. community is very upset about that. <laughs> <laughs> that's another yeah. day. What a great <laughs> opportunity for you to answer the question I asked Josh, which is which was... how would you describe what you do? Oh yeah, the how and More why. importantly, why you do what you do. Yeah, I had an awful feeling coming here today that we would get into this. <laughs> Why awful? Oh, because I can't succinctly, um, I, c- I can say what motivates me. Uh-huh. Okay, um, just answer that one. I'm like um, a, um, a super old middle-aged like, risk taker and only my playing field now, yeah. like you're finding the places to inject mm. your values. I'm realising I'm happy to do slightly risky, subversive things, but now in a grown-up playing space which often looks like local central government or profit-making enterprises but the thing I'm becoming more interested in is um, how to facilitate really good strategy and purpose and how to solve problems um, which just sounds really woolly doesn't it well could you give an example I could give an example so My subject matter expertise space is the built environment, Mm. so design and construction. And that expertise is just a collection of people. I have a really good network in that space. And what I'm learning as I get older is you're only as strong as the next person you know. 
to ask that question or find that thing or connect with that other person, right? So I'm trying to take that subject matter expertise into the space of solving problems of other industries. So an example I've done recently, I spent 10 years building a social enterprise for how to get people to think differently about the way they build their buildings. Mm. It was called Prefab NZ and it looked at innovative construction methods. And it still has a life, um, which is great, but it's changed its name and stuff. So what was interesting with that was being in a space of how do you get people to think about how they're doing things and really question it? Is it working for me? Is mm. it efficient? Is it effective? Am I using the best tools that are available to me? How do I help ideas spread? How do I create trust and a club of people that really value each other and share precedents and stories and really learn from each other? So that was a really cool experience. But what I realised is the environment is not the fastest changing space. Mm. So wouldn't it be cool to take those learnings into other spaces where we might have more results? Um, but at the moment, I'm still in the trying to help solve little problems uh, in the innovative construction, social housing, um, affordable housing, added value kind of timber products space. But it's such a wild west out there in terms of the construction slash architectural space. Yeah. As someone looking in who's not, yeah. you know, because with the tool work that I do, yes. I'm seeing and being exposed to ideas. So I, I am seeing an online event for architects every month. You're at the training. pointy, really interesting end. The stuff we are, you're that's what I was is... going to say. We're kind of on the boundary end. Mm. So we invite people in globally who are at the boundary of what mm. Pamela is just discussing. We're doing like wild and wonderful and weird things mm. with computational design and parametric mm. architecture and fabrication. Highly sexy, with... highly interesting, highly engaging. Yeah, radical, disruptive, yeah. all these... But is anyone going to do it? Don't know. But I'll, we'll watch it and listen to it and exactly. learn about it. And it yeah. gives you hope in a sense of because they're good. really deeply thinking about the effect of what they're doing, especially around circular economy, regeneration, you know, uh, regenerative approaches and stuff like that. Cause yeah, they're 3D printing stuff. They're throwing plants all over the outside of buildings. Right. They're just doing lots of cool However, stuff. then I just look around for the impact of what I'm experiencing every month. And I can't point to anything, hardly anything, in Wellington that goes, look, told you, mm. the construction slash architectural industry are changing the built environment mm. radically, like what I've just experienced. So, But it might be that you're helping people get out of bed and get to work each day. It might be that okay. the CPD is the continuing professional development, the things that they're learning about, which gets them the points to keep yeah. them in business. Yep. It's just helping them keep going. I'm not, yeah, dismissing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I mean, I know, I know you're not searching for a reason why, but I'm just throwing one mm -hmm. at you anyway. But, but I'm kind of reflecting what you said about it being a space that moves glacially, you know, very slowly. Yeah. And I, I'm seeing that as well. But what I suppose you mentioned just briefly, you've just worked for the last 10 years on this little thing, this change, this name, and it's still going. Oh, yeah. Like, that's not a small thing. You yeah, know, it was so interesting. In terms of it changing your name and you're still involved in it? I'm not involved. Anymore? Okay, no. cool. I left it nearly three years ago. But it was a membership organisation? Yeah, it still is a membership organisation. Right. So it was called Prefab NZ. It's now called Offsite NZ. Offsite. You could argue what to call something, really, till you're blue in the face. 
But the, at the end of the day, it's about innovative construction. Mm. The main thing I think that we did in that 10 years was we managed to get through to some really influential decision makers. And at yeah. that point, it was Minister Phil Twyford, and he was incredibly receptive to innovation ecosystem thinking. And he was really on board with social housing and obviously had the really grand scheme around the Kiwi Build space, mm. which was a great idea that just fell down for just different reasons outside mm. of his control. But what I learned from that is, you know, by um, getting people excited at the grassroots and having conversations right through to ministers, then the ministers could put in place the now my agent, Kaingora Homes mm. and Communities. I entrust you to now use this off-site technology to deliver your houses, and then now it's being implemented. Yeah. So now we're finally <laughs> getting that connection of industry capability with government agency strategy directives, mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah, because it's cool though. It's very cool, impact. but it's fascinating to see how that kind of works, like over yeah. ten years, right. how like how influence works. I was very naive; I didn't know how any of that stuff worked. So, whatever. It worked. It's a place is for working, naivety, though. happening. Oh, 100%. Otherwise, otherwise <laughs> not, you'd no never end, put those talks on to in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, that's... 100% naivety. Yeah. yeah. That's why anyone goes into business, mm. isn't it? Yeah, hoping Full to change the world. And, but that's where we met in 2016. When yes. you were... Your, your TEDx. Correct, yeah. 2016 TEDx. Uh, yeah. Were you speaking spoke. at TEDx? Mm -hmm. oh, Did a right. TEDx Wellington talk in 2016 and... Uh, us all away with uh, turning logs into jobs That's, is one of the taglines. That was one of the taglines. Yeah. And Always since then that. you've had other good um, innovations in the construction space with Jed Finch's um, one about... years later. Yeah, about yeah. X-Frame. Yeah. Beautiful, right? Yeah, so there's lots of neat stuff happening in mm. that innovation space. Jed was one of our one of our first Creative Welly peeps. So oh, cool. there's a great chat mm. about him. This is a local guy who's come up with a way of really thinking about walls and the general kind of uh, construction fabric, shall we say, which we know as walls and things, that can be kind of moved and taken uh -huh. apart, like almost like Meccano. So yeah. uh, literally you can build a house and then you can make it smaller yeah, when, and give a room to your kids who are moving away, you know, and kind of give a little bit Take to your house. Take it back. Yep. Indeed, yeah. And, cool. and he's, I think, now already building houses in Australia because uh, he's done a lot of work out there and he's starting to build little things. Yeah, yeah. there's um, Australian buy-in in the company and I think they're working mainly in the um, interior office wall, That's right. partition wall space. No, but it's your classic CNC cut plywood, you know, made into a different type of wall that's not, mm -hmm. um, you know, not your classic no. pre-nailed wall frame. Very clever, very clever yeah. in terms and of what's possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's highly articulate, young guy. He is, yeah. But we in need, terms we need of, more of those people in the construction industry. Yeah, yeah. And like you, kind of doesn't know what he doesn't know, so he's trying hard, to, although he's a very clever PhD boy mm -hmm. um, and doing wonderful things in that. In terms of your transition yeah. then away from prefab, mm -hmm. what's your journey been since? Yeah, cool. Um, so it's been really interesting. The first thing I did was I did a little bit of being a sponge again. I did Seth Godin's mm -hmm. um, Alt-MBA which is an online alternative MBA for a month. And this is pre-COVID and it was all oh. Zoom, Slack. So that was fascinating. You know, mm. a couple of hundred people around the world for a month where you ship a project like, I don't know, three or four times a week. 
And what was fascinating is they had a really great reflection feedback cycle. So mm. everything you posted, you had to give comments about five other people's work, and then you received, obviously, five comments. I mean, it's a massively, perfectly timed kind of cycle, but it made me learn that you um, learn a lot through that reflection process. And as Kiwis, we're hopeless at mm. that stuff. So actually, there's a course that Jed um, tutors on that I developed for Victoria called Design Thinking Business, which is about that space between design and business again. And um, we tried to get the... Um, I want to say kids, the young uni students to um, use more re personal reflection. It's really hard to put in at a Kiwi mm. level without um, being militant about at this time you will have done four comments, etc, etc. But we really tried to get them to think hard about how do you take feedback, how do you give feedback, how do you reflect on that feedback. Okay. You know, it's not a very Kiwi way to operate. It's a skill as well to give someone constructive a feedback. A learned skill, yes. That yeah. needs practice. Yeah. Yeah. Rather, <laughs> I, I, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I'm someone who could do better. Well, okay, how, how do you practice it or give it in your business? Mm. Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I should deflect that to DK. <laughs> um, He's not in your business. <laughs> Thank you. This evening. We have, we have had a range of uh, efforts at feedback. Uh, mm -hmm. We've got both formal processes where you can um, where people get it and uh, sort of like workshops that we do periodically mm -hmm. sort of introducing people to the concept and practicing it um, it's one where we different roles have different levels of like a team and so we've got an interesting uh, situation where developers and designers get great feedback and then the other roles tend to be smaller teams and it tends to be more personal and about your working relationships mm. just because of the makeup of, of the business mm. so it's actually something I I, I struggle to uh, maintain. Mm. Mm. Um, Is this a bit about making impact visible? Does it come back to the whole, you know, how do we measure some of these things and talk about, you know, like the social impact stuff? Mm. I mean, it's almost on a similar theme, isn't it? Like how do we basically talk about measure and feedback or benchmark the things that we yes. can't really see, the non-tangible, you know? It's not dollars and cents. Mm. Uh, and I and it's like, how do you measure someone's productivity? You don't want it to be on hours oh, work. It's or, difficult, isn't it? Yeah. 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 They're infinitely, you always have these questions. Yeah. Um, I, I do think we've made some, certainly some people are great with it. And I think, as you said, the culture is one that takes time for people to uh, develop into. Um, our people manager's done a lot of work in terms of growth frameworks and applying them and revising them. So oh. people sort of have some struts that they can go through. Hmm. Uh, but also it does come down to the person. So some people really soak it all in and are great, and some people are just less interested and we just have to, um, you know, let people let people go with what works for them, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, I, I notice having quite a different personality um, to doing more of that structured feedback um, just having different types of relationships, like one-to-ones and check-ins and a variety of different types of conversations mm. is probably the right thing because, you know, you might not be filling in the all the ticks in the plan, but at least if you've got back and forth going and you're talking about daily work, you, you know, by and large, you know that there's something, you know, you're sort of covering mm. off, um, you know, lack of communication or if people go quiet and then suddenly they're dealing with things, you can more pick that yeah. up intangibly. What about customers and clients and stakeholders? Great have question. you guys got shareholders? 
Ah, uh, we do now. Yes, through the yeah. merger, we have some, so how do you have get... some shareholders. Okay, cool. So, how do you get all their Ooh, feedback? Great question. Um, or report on where you're at with them. Well, we do feedback. At, maybe taking a slightly different angle, which is we have really easy shareholders, thankfully, mm. uh, but we do a company-wide quarterly retrospective. Mm -hmm. So uh, that uh, used to be getting everyone in a room, uh, one in New Zealand and one in Australia, um, having a really p positive building social bonds type of experience that would take two or three hours and everyone would get a snapshot of what, what's happening, what's working, and you know, thrash out some of those um, conversations. Mm -hmm. We've adapted that online, um, which we've uh, found that subjecting people to a three-hour endless meeting with no agenda is not the best experience. Um, so we've just had to adapt the format of that. Mm -hmm. But um, but that's been a really good that's been a really good thing to do, and it's one of those things that's, that's hard. Mm -hmm. I think one thing Brecken got right at the start was just making sure that we did that, even though it was quite yeah. Uh, yeah. challenging. Um, thing to make time for hmm. and uh, I think that gives people uh, like a quarterly different perspective and a chance to know what's sort of what's going on for everyone at a different level of perspective from and is, are your customers or, in that are your customers and no. shareholders in that uh, we forward the we forward that to shareholders and okay. then, then the leadership team might have a conversation with those shareholders right I'm yeah. um, interested in how the customer or the shareholder would feed into that yes yeah so I don't know. <laughs> a, a colleague yeah. and I have started a conversation about how um, the customer voice comes into the boardroom, into right. the governance setting, because yeah. half the roles I have are governance. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I'm very interested in like design thinking or user-centered design or human-centered design, again, meeting something a bit more rigid, like mm. governance. So again, it's that kind yeah. of like design and business, right? Um, so it's a space that is totally unexplored. Mm. So we're starting to like look at it and have put a few feelers out through LinkedIn and some articles with the Institute of Directors. Mm. And some people talk about um, having another chair at the table, which is the, uh, there's no right. one actually yes. sitting symbolic. there. Symbolic. Yeah, a symbolic yeah. empty yeah. chair, which is mm. Joe and Jane customer, mm -hmm. um, so that they're in the room. Yeah, and I guess probably with your soft and stuff, there's probably lots of interesting ways to look at getting customer voice, shareholder voice. And Sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's really interesting, as long as it's not net promoter score. <laughs> 100 percent. But I've in the past people have advocacy roles on their boards. Uh -huh. So literally a role to advocate for X, Y, and Z. Usually though it's around diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Right. So like they, a tenant being on the board of a social housing provider go, or something. There we perfect example. Like an so, end user as opposed to a But literally have client. an advocacy role that they play in there. They don't have a full yeah. governance role. Right? No, but it's suggested power sharing. and Exactly. And at least yeah. there's a, a human slash voice, mm. which is what you started with, how mm. do you include the voice, mm. in the room to represent. Mm. And in, in a sense, they are embodying the bigger yeah. collective, whomever they are. You can see them. So you're not going to... There's going to be ways about how yeah. you talk and structure your decision making. And you'd hope that they have run down the agenda and gathered some feedback on it before they arrived mm. anyway, or at least got some insights and made mm. some notes and stuff. And mm. so that's yeah, one how way, to get maybe. those kind of marginalised voices. One of the things I'm working on with GHD is they have a Smart Seeds program, which is an incubator for 10 weeks to help young leaders in the built environment both network and work on some challenges, challenges are under that kind of climate change thing, mm. similar to the good work that Creative HQ does with those kind of incubation mm -hmm. um, programs. 
But one of the challenges is about how to get younger voices into consultation mm. processes, like when we talk about our built environment at a local uh, government yeah. level, for example. And in Welly, we've had a fairly recent mm -hmm. um, interesting example at the end of last year. So um, something that I remember a friend in Denmark telling me is um, what they do when they have national political elections is they get the voice of all the younger people, 18 and under, and they release their vote a week before the nation makes their official vote. So mm. there's no waiting to their vote, but for a week you have the mood of the youth yeah. Those known to you. Those who are not old enough to vote. Yes, everyone ah, under 18. Interesting. Yeah. Kind of informing yeah. and Your children will get more involved with this. Mm. I guess even five, they'll probably start having political voices. And yeah, yeah, how do you include their voices? So this way, mm. your voters are aware of and possibly influenced by their mood. Yeah, it's a beautiful their, approach. Isn't that cool? Oh, from, lovely. From, it's like pretty logical inclusion without getting too drawn out, you know? I agree. Like in my first role, I was a youth worker, one of my first roles, and working for local authorities back in the UK and became a corporate youth officer for a local authority. And again, that was an advocacy role. I very much positioned that. I wrote, wrote corporate policy for young people and kind of yeah. informed debate and whatever was up for debate in the, in the, the chamber. Uh, and me being that advocate. Advocorial? That's not even a word, but you know what I mean. An advocate Just not for, adversarial. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, voice for it. And I found that really interesting because it's often missed out young people, you know, and they, they go to school 100%. and that's where they, they live. And it's like they have much of a right. And there was a huge campaign around that time. This was like uh, 99 through to 2006. I kind of was in that space. Uh, there was a huge campaign in the UK to give to lower the vote, voting age yeah. to 16. Yeah. I know there's a similar one here yeah. in New Zealand now. So it might be in a couple of years' time, your kids might be voting in the yeah. national election because they'll be that I'm old. comfortable with that. Another decade, your kids might be up and around that age. And I know they do some internal stuff in schools where they have like a mock debate and mock kind of things to get people aware of the political kind of landscape. I think they've got a lot more headspace for this stuff. You know, they're Nowadays, untainted yeah. sponges because they're yeah. not worried about paying insurance and servicing the car and getting the groceries and all that stupid stuff that okay, takes up 80% of your, yeah, yeah, none of that stuff. So they can just actually really dig into issues. Mm. I mean, the questions they can pose. It'd be fascinating, wouldn't it? Fantastic. If we shifted it on, how would that change the political landscape, if at all? Yeah. But voting is different from engagement. And I think point. I, I really mm -hmm. like what where some of those ideas are coming from. And I think when you look at uh, things like... <laughs> One of our projects is actually about facilitating consultations mm -hmm. um, and I've seen a, a range of uh, sort of engagement and consultation initiatives around government uh, but what dominates is that consultation is usually a legally mandated process Indeed. that is structured and in a very difficult to engage with format mm. um, and it's difficult for people who don't have any professional understanding of the domain to give their kind of feedback. So, mm. you know, so when you're like, well, why would kids uh, want to, in oh, sorry, not just kids, why would a range of disengaged people, more importantly, mm. uh, want to spend their time in an uncompensated way to give feedback on something that's not going to be listened to? Uh, you know, we, there, there needs to be a lot more flexibility in terms of mm. how, how, how things are heard and how they make mm. change. It needs to be as easy for 
all others as it is for retired privileged white people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But you touched on the magic word there, consultation, right? Which I did a lot of when I was just mm. mentioned about that role because it's like, yeah, going to go and consult where we're going to stick that skate park and stuff there. Mm. Right. And I did a lot of it, not knowing that that is already a locked-in system and a kind of a, a weighted system already. Um, and I very quickly changed my tune from it should we shouldn't consult, we could, should converse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it should be ongoing because yeah. a consultation usually is a one-off. Mm. We usually put parameters around it yes. for the right reasons sometimes because you can't just go to kids when I was mm. doing it and say, what do you want there? Swimming pool. We can't. Mm. We can't. <laughs> you know, mm. don't have the funds. Yes, you know. <laughs> so you can't just open it up. However, you know, a conversation would be like over time we need to change our... Mm-hmm. our approaches, but also change in terms of trends, what's going on in, in that community. And this brings me back to one of my things to talk to both of you about, because you've already teased the idea that you've worked from the top down in government. And oh, I know yeah. you have had lots of kind of, shall we say, overlaps, like a Venn diagram with mm-hmm. influencing. And um, you also sit on one of the consult- government consultancy panel. Wrote that down just to get it right. Is that right? Ah uh, yes, yeah. We're on we're on a couple of the panels where That's we, right. we'll, we'll deliver work to government. How how do you see kind of uh, both your your kind of uh, roles, both past and now, influencing governmental kind of decisions? And where would you like to, it to steer, both in your respective industries? How what needs to change? I suppose is a better way of putting it. Um, okay. Well, what needs to change is. Organisations need to change what they see their workers as being not just internally focused. So um, I think it's more relevant to talk by example than generally. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're an advocate in NZ Rise, which advocates for the um, uh, locally owned um, IT sector. And we've engaged uh, for years uh, challenging government policy that doesn't take account of wider factors. And what I would say is that um, in my experience, I saw um, a, a procurement portal advertise a all-of-government um, tender, uh, and I had never had any professional development on how to participate in a tender. Mm-hmm. And certainly when I have attended those professional developments, they have nothing to do with the expertise I have now to be able to participate and win in a tender. They only train you on how to participate and hope. Um, and effectively what happened was that that tender said we want organizations who can do design user interface and websites and my business didn't provide that service we provided a different type of technology uh-huh. i looked at it and i said if we'd done a couple of websites this looks really important that we should be here we didn't go through that tender and we spent three years of not being able to develop a commercial credible pro- uh, profile with the new zealand government and so what that means is that there's an incredible number of young professionals like myself who don't want to work for another firm who are not working with government uh, because it's too hard. Mm. When they do want to work with government and solve those problems, um, the barriers are entrenched. And uh, the people who see themselves at the core are removed from the practical problems, which is that you just can't have a ban on new organisations coming in every three or four years. That's outrageous. What about companies that are two years old? They should have an entry to the Mm. market. It it should be about quality, not whether you've limited the market to four years. 
And so there's a whole bunch of those frustrations that when you open the doors and you say, what should we reform about procurement? You kind of get like a small polite version of a mob. I'm so frustrated. I'm so angry. You've excluded me and you're going to get a whole bunch of venting. And um, the people who make policy are um, so disconnected from the problem, they don't have the skills to write the rules. And I don't think the people on the other side of the fence have bad intent, but they do have negative effects that they're not taking responsibility for. And so you need to go through quite a difficult process because you might go, well, I don't care about a karma. Why do I care that you lose out on some web development contracts? And it's like, well, you know, sure, if you don't want the IT sector to grow, if you don't want the largest customer in the country to work with young and emerging firms, if you, um, you know, need to subcontract through a company like Akama just to get yourself started with um, government mm. clients, you're going to have a weaker sector and everyone's going to be frustrated that government projects aren't delivered to the same quality or they're more expensive. So you need to take a more holistic look at policy and you also need to... Um, train people not to just box tick the lowest cost option because that will always be outsourcing and then you'll end up in a situation where you can't employ your local workforce. You Mm. can't develop New Zealanders to have those $200,000 a year salaries. Um, You know, that could completely transform the economy if, if, um, you know, if if people were coming out of school on that sort of pathway, Mm. Um, if that's what they chose. You know, it's not like tech is the only uh, pathway, uh, but it's certainly one that I don't think... um, I don't think government has uh, had a sensible strategy for, okay. and um, I have gone a long way off topic now, but hopefully you can see my no, picture. No, no, you're good. We're still on it. Yeah, I'm still um, on it. I'm too. hoping there's um, the Josh Ford show notes about <laughs> five, five <laughs> ways to win a government tender. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm, next on your I'm blog, signing right? Up. My, uh, my little pet, I don't have time to do this as a project, mm-hmm. but I've, I've got friends yeah. at Inspiral Dev Academy and yeah. really admire what they're doing, and, you know, if I kind of... <laughs> didn't have a job to do, what I would be doing is essentially the same type of uh, project but for business development and commercial skills. Mm-hmm. I think those are more scarce in New Zealand startups than they mm. are uh, developers. Business uh, development and commercial skills. There's no pathway for people to learn to sell. Love it. And, and that sales straight away will turn a lot of people off, just calling it that, right? So the relationship building is the softer side of things which we know is more important now and harder to do. So I don't know why they call it softer. But you're so right. Yeah, I don't see many people talking about that, first of all, as a, as a kind of a, a career goal mm. or even building out, I don't know, rhetoric around it, discourse yeah. around it. And when you describe business development, the <coughs> word sale, your role right in mm. the very beginning, the word sales didn't come into it once. Mm. So it's just really interesting. There was relationships, one of those. 100%. Yeah. But that's that not soft but strong skills. Yeah. One of the things I'm doing is working with the distillery, which is an innovation strategy shop in Auckland. Um, shop, And we're doing the construction skills strategy for mm. what's called the construction sector accord, which it sits inside government, but it's meant to be industry and government together. But it operates at a tier one, really large entity level. Okay. So the little SMEs don't see themselves in it so much yet. So it's an opportunity. I don't know if you know, but in the built environment, there's something like 60,000 SMEs, you know, one to five people bands. Um, But we've been talking a lot about what someone has helpfully suggested might be called strong skills, Mm. not soft skills. Okay. Yeah. 
because soft, you know, in a macho white construction company co right. culture, is uh, soft skills is a hard sell. So right, you yeah. reframe it. Yeah, I think this is the chance we've yeah. got to relook at our construction skills culture, which is essentially our construction culture, mm. because you can't deliver anything without people. So um, yeah, it's a fascinating space. And when you said, what could government do? Well, government, of course, has this problem with collaboration between agencies, right? So mm -hmm. there's something in there about the way they work together that is a really neat opportunity in the in-betweens yeah. of, the, of the agencies. Um, and I've been introduced recently to, I think it's Mariano Mazzucato. Have you guys read her? I think oh. she's an Italian, um, maybe an economics um, professor, but she's written about the entrepreneurial state Basically, that the government has got a remit to be more innovative and creative and possibly fail at times, rather than just bringing in external consultants all the time to do that for them. Mm -hmm. And certainly my hope is that if there was more accountability and ownership of that innovation from within the government agency, there might then be more ownership over the outcome. So we might get more strategies and roadmaps and action plans turning into implementation and more measurement and more benchmarking, you know, just more shit happening. Mm. Does that so make sense? Us, I love that, but tell us You're a little looking, bit more about I'm that. No, no. I'm not explaining it very clearly. No, you kind of uh, detailed very quickly what you were involved with there and its intention, the, the kind of uh, both gov internal government and sector. What was that accord thing, that construction? Oh, construction accord? sector accord. Sector. Yes. Yeah, so it sits inside MB, Ministry for Business Innovation and Employment, which is where construction sits. And what's its aim? Its aim is to bring industry and government together to work on the grittiest problems we have, right. to uphold the best behaviour, you know, to show the top precedents and okay. benchmark case studies to solve some of these problems, which often looks like developing roadmaps. So mm. around areas like the environment, diversity, um, and now somewhere sitting up there, skills, because people are right across mm. everything, right? Okay. But I think the industry is starting to realise it has a diversity issue, and not just a gender one, but, you know, mm -hmm. in every sense of the word. Mm -hmm. It's mm. actually a really neurodiverse industry, apparently. Apparently there's a really high number of... Um, you know, folks that are dyslexic and, you know, that harks back to that really old-fashioned idea. Yeah. Oh, you're having trouble with school? Sweet, go be a tradie. Yeah. You know, so we're trying to get out of mm -hmm. those outdated yeah. perceptions. So in terms of what they could do better is, like you said, that pathways, the taking responsibility but risk as well. Taking accountability by owning the innovation themselves right. instead of outsourcing it. Fascinating. And taking the roadmaps right through implementation, mm -hmm. measuring stuff. I couldn't tell you how many strategies and roadmaps and action plans and things we've come across and can't find any measurement. Don't know if anything worked. No reporting right at the end of it and just being... Yeah, no one's accountable. There's just a person would have been accountable for getting that roadmap started, mm -hmm. but no one's accountable for in three or five years' time to measure and see if anything actually worked. Probably because people moved you know on, that. right? <laughs> you know that feeling. <laughs> well, there's nothing easier in the world than to start a response to a problem. Uh -huh. But it's only the ones that you finish that have any chance to make an impact. So is and that a character thing, thing or an accountability thing? Or 
or is that just a sense of actually it's just me on my own career journey I'm not really caring so much about the stuff I'm producing along the way could it be a third thing what? a system thing mm. the system's not so there the to system isn't geared up for finishers <laughs> but it's geared up for starters Maybe. so it likes people and how likes to kick finishing? off yeah how do we we transition away or at least transition into uh, both a start and a finisher. I'm thinking about my even experience with Collider, that little project I got involved with with Biz Dojo, uh-huh. mm. which was government funded from city council. Mm-hmm. And for other reasons, I lasted cool. 40 months in that role, but did a great start, 200 events in 14 mm-hmm. months, you know, mm-hmm. right? kicked off, handed it across, mm-hmm. and it, didn't re- it, it kind of started like that, but it kind of just teetered out. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, there's another example that I've been directly involved mm. with. Sometimes that's only as strong as the personal at the person at the front. Just like that's a startup, just like yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, you can't just on sell that. No, you're right. You're right. And, you're so right. Yeah. And, and that's a really hard thing when you leave something and move on, is leaving it so Momentum, the entity right. is yeah. as strong as without you. Fascinating. Yeah. How do we create those? So you're both working Make on projects redundant. that could have a, a, a national shift. Okay. In your respective industries, yeah. are you, you hopeful? What are you getting at? That there's commonality of purpose. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> what did you think I was getting at? Because that was I quite. I don't know. I was, feel, I was feeling it? quite heavy. <laughs> it's more celebratory. Okay, that's good. Uh, rather than <laughs> no, it's more like yeah, hey, it's a cool thing. So, what do you need to drive it home? What's great question? What's the missing bit? How can people help? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I'm, How do we get I'm on board sure. the Akama bus? Um, I think that's a great question. I think for us, we need to balance. Um, I think for us, in terms of the work that we do, it's really shifted in terms of being wholly digital. Um, so there's no one in the office. I mean, while we're recording this, we've got our um, Omicron mm. uh, surge. But uh, for us, we're not sure that the office being busy is coming back and the way we're working in teams is blended across Australia and New Zealand as single projects now. So it's much more virtual. Mm. So I think we actually probably have a practicality job which is, at, which is reminding people that we're here, what we do, that we exist um, and holding on to quite a human side of the work that we do. Mm. We're on our own journey with that. We've got our got our challenges I, I think the internal journey is as a bunch of geeks you know transforming into marketing and having a really clear message that we reinforce is still still somewhere where we're building our own confidence mm-hmm. um, nice we're all about tech but we're all about people yeah yeah that's right and translating that um, I think the big pro- I think the big challenge in my mind that I feel we're still working out is we do so many things deeply within our customers' organisations, so what's the common message that we delivered? Um, so just pulling The value that, out. that we bring, the problem that we solve. Yeah, whereas if I tell you about the projects, they speak for themselves, right? Yeah. But how do we find that actual commonality across them that we explain mm. what we do for our clients mm. and how we So someone can find journey. our front door. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. Bring so your I'd problem say, to I'd us. I'd say we're still growing in that, in that space. Yeah. Um, and uh, we want to. We're doing some really interesting work with the New Zealand government, 
and mm-hmm. want to keep that on track. And I think as the borders open up, we're um, you know, looking to really consolidate what we do in Australia because we're still a very niche organisation over there in mm. a much larger market. Mm-hmm. Um, but, Would uh, you we move see over there? Uh, moving to Melbourne's not right for me, but uh-huh. uh, we think there might be a future office somewhere and, mm-hmm. and that might well be um, you know, a time that I want to move. But um, I'm also fairly happy in Wellington, so you know, we'll see what's required, I think. I hope you're ecstatic in Wellington. <laughs> <laughs> I have I feel my privilege very acutely because mm. of um, how Wellington has become inaccessible and uh, that's something that I think we just nationally need uh, need to get through that sort of crisis in terms become of housing become inaccessible and, yeah. okay now you're talking about the housing market uh, basically yes is this a, something that your team is facing I think yes I think uh, it's just a it's just a demographic shift between winners and um, people who can't participate. Okay, um, and because you have a lot of employees that are 30-something and wanting to Yep, 20-something, 30-something. Yeah. Um, unless they happened to have a house before things surged, mm. uh, they're in a really yeah. different um, set of opportunities. Um, yeah. So we're, we're pretty realistic about people living in regions being part of our future. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I'm disappointed for Wellington too. Uh, it needs needs young people, and it needs yes. people who are here casually and who don't feel like buying a mortgage. Uh, sorry, buying a house right now. Hundred uh, percent. To feel like it's got real people in it. So Which brings back to that consultation thing about yeah. how do we get their voices in? Because we're just going to have to go up a little bit more and yep. be more dense in places. Mm. Not Could Singapore we be more dense. radical as well. We could be more radical. So one of the governance hats I have is um, I'm on the Seaview Marina, which mm-hmm. I have to be honest, I didn't even know I was there. Didn't even know the marina was there at that kind of hinge point between the Hutt Valley and Eastbourne. Mm. Um, I must have driven past oh, it a yes. million yeah. times. Mm. It's got very strict signage restrictions, so how would you know it was there? Oh, and right. it doesn't have much engagement with the public yet, but it could be. But one of the things we're looking at is floating apartments otherwise known as houseboats, yep. uh-huh. which if you've been to San Francisco or Vancouver, yeah. you know. Or London. Or, yeah, yeah, London, Amsterdam. Or some of the European countries, <laughs> Lots of them, anywhere that has a canal, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I lived on a houseboat in London. Ah, ah. Mm. there we go. How interesting. Well, there's an unexplored domain. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so anyway, I think, totally, I yeah, if that. we want to get radical, I think yeah. that's fairly radical. The other thing, of course, is, we're so hooked up on home ownership mm. yeah. as a political imperative because historically a homeowner was a voter. Yeah, right. So I think we just need to be careful who's driving this home ownership thing. It's security of tenure, mm. and we have had good politicians who have understood that. So it's really making mm. sure our tenancy rules are robust and world standard, right? As well as yeah. home ownership. I don't know how. I, I, I mean, part of me is like, how did we ever create a market that was based on a highest bidder wins, like a a betting scenario, mm. basically, which is what it feels. To access a human right. To access a human right. Yeah, I if mean, you think about it in those terms. How did that get terms, set up? Yeah. How did that start and because, how do you get out of that? Well, the language is all wrong for me. It's not property and houses, it's homes. Mm. And as soon as you start talking about homes for people, it's different than properties Mm -hmm. and there is a around the world you look at different places like rent control in New York in Berlin all these other places it kind of works for Mm. 
driving diversity and you know uh, in the demographics of of just places and things like that but accessibility as well is a big thing uh, but also you know just be honest it's it, it's a broken system and the winners win more and there's more losers than winners so mm. we need to be honest with it's broken that. globally it's not just and globally us. but you know let's take it as a, a local issue mm. and i think for me the big turning point was when uh, in down in canterbury uh, there was a local paper that came out with a report on the the housing crisis down there and the rent crisis mm. and this is only like in the last year or two mm. uh, so we weren't too far ago where they extrapolated out all the data that they have of on, on home, home home ownerships in Christchurch specifically yeah. and they forward projected it and it was something silly like in 2050 there would only be seven people owning the majority of rental properties because of the amount of people <laughs> buying the homes the right. already it's having increasing. homes so yeah. they're just increasing their wealth yeah. uh, and if that carries on only seven people will own homes yeah and you're just going okay now we need to stop we have to date this just mm. yeah it's a funny old system that we can have an impact on but again there's yeah. uh, lots of politics traditional politics and thinking around it there's and then you get into the quality of the homes Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Which <laughs> I can light you off. Yeah, yeah. no, I think um, on the disruptive, creative mm -hmm. um, solutions, you know, we, uh, a lot of people are living in homes that are too big. So we have created homes that, you know, are not made to change, although mm. we're good at DIY, aren't we? So <laughs> there, is, there are apparently, and there's good research to back this up, a lot of opportunities to um, slice and dice homes to okay. turn them into double units, you know? Yeah. Because okay. we've got a massive growing proportion of one person, one and two people, mm -hmm. um, households. Yeah. And then, of course, we've got a lot of um, larger families wanting multi-bedrooms. But essentially, we just really need to create one and two beddies and then maybe a few five and sixes. Mm -hmm. But we really don't need any more three and four beddies. Right. Yeah, so it's interesting. So there's a lot of that is around perception of mm. how much space you need. Mm. Um, you know, my family lived in a two-bedroom two apartment in Mount Vic until my oldest, eldest was 14. So kids shared a bedroom, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. It used to be okay, but yeah. it's amazing how now we think we need a lot more space than we really need. Yeah. So I think we really need to think about how much space we own as opposed to how much do we share out there. Yeah. You know, like in European cultures where they don't even think about it, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And it's a lot more communal living as well and, and yeah. going up and, and having a, a, a shared sense of community around like a, an open space as well. Yeah. Mm. And we've lost that definitely. And, and do we thinking. need to domesticate our backyards? Should we have a wee pop-up? So when I was at Prefab and said we did a really cute competition called the Snug, comp, um, snug Design. It was, um, uh, it was a home you know, in my backyard as opposed to not in my backyard. But there were about 12 winners, um, and so, several of them have gone to market. And there's, Is that right? Yeah, so First Light Studio, um, yeah. you might know those wonderfully creative young folks. So they did an offshoot, it's called Flip Homes. Yeah, I know them. Yeah. Yeah, they're in the market, they're doing great. Yeah, so that came out of that snug wow. um, home, which was really no, just right. seeding an idea. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, we took it as far as we could in that we got Mia Goff to kind of award the prizes mm -hmm. and we took it to the ministers and 
so they could see. And it was part of us opening a conversation about why is it only 10 square metres um, before you get pinged with having to do building consent? In the Netherlands, it's 30 square metres. Um, and it may or may not be related, but fairly recently it has opened up to 30 square metres. So it's really good to seed kind I'm of ideas. It. it was related. <laughs> okay, own it. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think these are the questions yeah. we need, to, or agitations mm. we need to have, right? Because you can do that. something with 30 square metres. You can't live in 10 square metres. Well, no. you can, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, then there's some cool stories like the young 22-year-old nurse who built a tiny house herself on weekends. Um, wow. Yeah. Well, the tiny house movement is yeah. massive, it's, right? It's huge. And we're only now just getting the guidelines coming out of MB about how right. to treat them, which is important because it's one of yeah. those things, isn't it, where the legislation or the guidelines come after yeah. the movement starts. Mm. But anything that can create more opportunities, and I guess the New Zealand lens is the papakainga opportunity, which is remove the cost of land completely and just deal with the house as a chattel. Mm. Yeah. Could you just explain? Community land. That, oh, yes. Oh, so yeah. This is so so the... Papakainga is the, you know, iwi term when the iwi owns the land mm. and then the houses are owned by individuals. And I guess there's a connection to services that's probably owned by the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, it's also known as community land trusts. So take the land out of the equation, someone else owns that, and then you just own the house on top. top. And it's a model used by community housing providers in some instances, and it's growing in interest. Um, The problem is, of course, you don't get the capital gains that you get with the land, and you pay a land lease. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. It's It's like freehold versus... It's access to housing as opposed to access to housing as an investment. Yes. Right. That's incredibly exciting, isn't it? It's great. It's been a... Really inspiring seeing that, you know, in the media. And uh-huh. I, I'm thinking of one in Hawke's Bay. And, yeah. And Ewe Developments. Cool. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, okay, it's happening. We just now. have to experiment, but it comes in Wellington with legal specifically, and financial. Yeah. It's hurdles. building upwards and, yeah, density. I'm aware I've been asking anybody else want to fire anything that we haven't touched upon. Any How screen? much time do we have, DK? Probably another 10 minutes or so. Okay. Yeah. Oh, you know, um, you answered most of my questions already. Um, But I was interested in, you know, you did that shift from corporate finance to more social impact-driven work. Yeah. So when um, your little three- and five-year-old, 10 years' time, when they come to Dad and Mm -hmm. say, yeah, I'm taking a look at Banker and all these other (laughs) cool apps and deciding I'm going to get me into some finance, what are you going to tell them? Oh, um... Would I be happy if they had one of those jobs that I walked out of? What would the conversation sound like when they come to you? Saying, uh, I'm off to do my BCA. I think... <laughs> Sorry, thinking about my own philosophy as a parent before I'm, <laughs> before I'm confronted with it. I'm much more virtuous in my own mind than, than, than I would be. Um, look, I think... Give us both versions. 
Okay, I joked with my... Uh, so when I came back to New Zealand, um, mm-hmm. I sort of joked to my wife that I was jumping out of the burning corporate building while she was getting in on the ground floor. Uh-huh. Yeah, because she came back to finish her law degree and mm-hmm. then had a corporate law career while I was trying to figure out how to pay the bills mm-hmm. and not succeeding very well for a few years, uh, coming back and getting out of that type of, uh, type of situation. Um, I think... Uh, I think for me, like, life life is hopefully long, and I think a lot of, you know, you don't have to set yourself up, off on a professional path that's radical and different before you've necessarily uh, got your own grounding in terms of skills, and I think the world of work is uh, important. I don't, I, I think, you know, the work you do at the office, unless you're of independent means, is going to be a lot of the value that you do during the day. So I'd support people to get their own development, um, even if they're not sure what they want to do. I certainly, my perception of what I wanted to do when leaving school was quite different to what I was good at. Um, so, you know, I'd be very relaxed in terms of supporting them. Yeah. I find it really interesting, uh, so uh, maybe in terms of your track record, I find it really interesting in my perception of what it would need if I were interested in them having like a sporting career and Mm. how you would need to be supporting them as a parent well before it's really in my opinion their own choice Mm. i find those types of things Mm. really interesting Mm. you know whereas if a if say your child were 12 or 15 you might recognize that they had an inherent drive and then support them Mm. Uh, some of these kind of especially olympic these individual Mm. grade sports it feels like you would have to already you know, be the, um, you know, sorry, is it Richard Williams? You know, the Serena and Venus father. Right, yeah, and uh, yeah. I'm definitely not that. You watched that movie? Uh, no, I haven't. Oh, it's so yeah. interesting. It's good, yeah. Okay. So, so I guess yeah. I find myself being relaxed and wanting, probably more focused on them having human values mm-hmm. and definitely not having like, although I personally like sports and maybe I would have been interested in doing that more seriously, I don't have any real regrets that I didn't. Mm. And so mm. I certainly um, just letting them take things at their own time. Um, and I don't feel like that's going to limit them yeah. in any way that I care about. Yeah, no regrets. Um, I like how you talked about Josh Vile. I guess maybe he was from Inspiral, yes. how he said yes to everyone. Yes. I was thinking when you did, you talked about riding your motorcycle for a year, that must have been all about saying yes. I mean, where did you go? What did you say yes to? What was that all about? Oh, I said yes to... Uh, being terrified and out of my depth. <laughs> awesome. I didn't know how things were going to work. Um, and it's funny how things work. I, I think, so I speak Spanish and I uh, spent a summer during university working in a restaurant in South America mm-hmm. and I had a horrible time. I didn't speak the language and culturally, I won't name the country, it was just not very um, easy if you okay. weren't really strong with the Spanish and Let's just say it was kind of, um, yeah, it was tough. And then I went traveling through Argentina and Brazil and for a couple of weeks and had a great time and I really found myself and my Spanish suddenly landed. Ah. Right. Uh, and I got in my mind this trip from Rio de Janeiro to Los Angeles and I went, well, that would be the dream, wouldn't it? Mm. And I went home and I finished my degree and got a couple of jobs and banks and it never really got away. And I remember reading in the newspaper, like Gareth Morgan motorcycling around the world, uh-huh. And I remember thinking, I don't have as much money as that old bastard, but I bet he needs a more expensive hotel. I can handle a lot of discomfort <laughs> to go. do that. And um, that was just a personal reflection. Like, oh, there are ways that 
I can do that. There's no intrinsic barrier. Mm -hmm. uh, so I learned to ride a motorcycle. I started saving every dollar that I could. Um, it was a bit strange. Like it was a good year and a half of anticipation of something. So my mm. life was a bit strange then. Mm. Like, yeah. Um, I, 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 don't, I didn't have a serious girlfriend, but that certainly didn't go anywhere because I was leaving. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, just through networks and emails and a few old motorcyclists who sort of recognised that and put me up for a couple of weeks in San Francisco, mm. gave me a base. And, um, oh, and I found a friend who wanted to come. He had um, been diagnosed with cancer and mm. had been okay and uh, had a fresh lease on life and the two of us bought the same motorbike, had the same level of mechanical ineptitude and <laughs> um, yeah, set off down south and uh, that, was, awesome. that was really interesting. And I did half the trip um, yeah, with a companion and half the trip solo. So you, um, so you went yeah. from San Fran down through Central America? Yep, through where Central did, America. Where did your friend end up? Uh, we parted ways in Colombia. Mm-hmm. And then I went down the uh, Pacific coast yeah. uh, to Peru, then mm -hmm. across Bolivia. Mm -hmm. That was the really um, intrepid, adventurous, mm -hmm. like, well, it was an, an adventure of motorcycling the whole way through. But that was more, uh, yeah, it was a very sort of personal, very hard going, mm. um, rugged kind of travel. Mm. Um, and then no once English. I got through Bolivia, uh, I speak Spanish, so that wasn't oh, a concern. Mm. Um, it was interesting when I went places where they didn't speak Spanish either. That was mm. interesting. Mm. Um, and then uh, Argentina and Brazil, which was comparatively a pretty um, relaxed time. Nice. Fascinating. Uh, yeah. What so an adventurer. Was, yeah. Love so that was, that was, yeah, that was me at 24. I love the saying yes to, you know, the full freak out. That's great. Um, it was interesting what people said was going to be a problem as opposed to what was a problem. Uh-huh. Perceptions. Um, New Zealanders had a perception that I would be robbed or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And <laughs> I was highly likely to die in a traffic accident. <laughs> but no one ever worried about that. <laughs> in fact, I nearly did a couple of times. Oh, I right. crashed my bike or okay. things. Um, they don't drive very well in that part of the world. Mm. I did, um, I did get a bag stolen, but in a very um, non-violent sort of uh, way that anyone could get a bag pinched in a hotel. Mm. Uh, by and large, people are honest, welcoming. Um, I also was very, uh, I wanted to see the world outside like the mainstream. Yeah. Um, and in those days, I also had an intent that I was going to do some volunteering, and I, in the end, it didn't work out. But mm -hmm. um, I really came face to face with uh, severe poverty, um, entrenched like historical injustices um, you know challenge that view of, you know New Zealanders feel like society's fair that might come under challenge but in those parts of the world um, society and the government is absolutely not for mm. the dispossessed um, mm. Mm. they absolutely don't have any sense of access or dignity and uh, that was really confronting um, meeting those humans and being able to speak the language is an incredible way to build up bit of a perception of how the world really works and how it's a complicated place so yeah nice. wow yeah. what's the uh obviously that was life-changing like mm. and kind of refreshing and 
exciting and scary as hell all in one thing. So that yes. probably defined you for the next couple of years. Yes, forward. yes. I dined out on that experience for six or seven years. But I just yeah. meant, you know, <laughs> sometimes you take those experiences into life, right? And when you come back to something that's a bit more, in inverted commas, normal, yes. uh, you, you still feel like an adventurer. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's important to know that everything you do has choices yeah. and that um, it's quite difficult to add things to your life but if you really want to you can yeah. but you just need to make those difficult trade-offs and choices Indeed. and also I have a relatively mainstream life at the moment and mm-hmm. if I wanted to be an adventurer like I would need to not see my kids for months or point, yeah. you know put myself in physical risk so I am interested in adventuring in the future but I think it was really good to do it young yeah. and then have a bit of a sense of like choosing more mm. normal things and being more conscious about that. Indeed. So this time five years ago, um, when I used to be married, um, the four of us, two kids, went on a seven-month trip through oh, South America and Mexico ah. and Europe. Ah. So you can drag the kids with you. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, easier before they're kind of 10 or intermediate level. But, but keep the risk, crazy adventure, scary say, stuff how did, alive. What yeah. was the outcome of that experience for you? Oh, um, gosh, so many things. Back. Mm-hmm. And probably seven months. I can relate to the seven-month prep and then, you know, a seven-month trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were doing it on the smell of an oily rag as well. There mm-hmm. were a couple of places in maybe Peru or somewhere where the kids went, uh uh-uh, I'm not staying here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we stayed mainly with friends and family through Europe because that's super yeah, expensive. Great. But um, what was the outcome? Well, for me, I was driven mainly by the whole FOMO thing. I knew that gotcha. um, it was the one chance to go because the kids were going to get older and get more mm. you know, entrenched with the whole school thing. Mm-hmm. When they're at primary school, school doesn't mind. They're just like, great, go have a nice time. A nice little window between everything. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was good. And they're you know, self-sufficient. I guess maybe um, they might not remember as much as if they were a bit older. Yeah. But the main thing is to not ever feel constrained. I'd always wanted to go to South America. Yeah. Yeah, so that was cool. You know, Brilliant. get a bit good of adventure. Point. Yeah. Yeah, everybody got to choose something that they wanted to see, so that was cool. Oh, awesome. Yeah, but yeah, those countries are fascinating. Mm. Yeah. I'm aware of time. Yeah. So how, do, how about we uh, wrap up with a juicy question about um, what's the most exciting thing coming up this year for you? Mm. <laughs> that you see on the horizon and go, I can't wait oh. for that. Do you want to go first? Oh, sure. No I'm going to turn say. 50 and I'm going to have a massive party. I love that idea. Yeah, because I'm sick of there not being anything, any parties, any events. Yeah. <laughs> right. We were just talking about that yeah, the last so couple of weeks it. too. Yeah, so just going to be a big party. Big party, okay. Love that. Yeah, Great I'd answer. wanted to just be in Mexico with like a bunch of girlfriends and like Oaxaca. And, That'd be but, nice, but... Yeah, but maybe not this year. But second best, right? Yeah, second party, best. Party, go crazy, people. karaoke. People, people, people. Love it. Mm. Yeah. How about you, Josh? Good idea. Look, I, I don't know, to be honest, but I have been thinking about it. Um, okay. uh, I think, uh, you know, with a couple of years of COVID, I've just learned to just be calm and take things a month at a time mm. and just have to be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I suspect there'll be something. Mm. Um, but uh, I'm just really trying to 
uh, you know, get through this sort of challenging phase and mm. stay positive and look after people. And um, uh, we're sort of not, uh, not I don't think, excessively concerned about little girls and Omicron, but just sort of like focusing on day-by-day yeah. day sort of stuff, keeping everyone well, and, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll just sort of take what's next uh, after that. Although I do have some... Um, outdoors adventures in mind um a little nice. bit of personal time okay so nice. um yeah local national i mean national yes. yeah. yeah okay yeah it'd oh, be cool. nice to get doing some tramping is yeah. there a place to go on your i have too tramping many bucket list? <laughs> every time i go uh, i'll grab like the three dollar map in the dock hut and mm-hmm. take it home to karori and you know put it on the shelf <laughs> <laughs> suggested so, yeah. oh, so cool. i've, I've yeah. got a like collection a couple of, maps. of i've got a couple of two and three day walks um Loosely in mind. Yeah. Nice. Uh, depends which part of the country we might decide to With get to. With the kids? I think it's time to give them an overnight, uh, but yeah. I'm thinking more. Um, yeah. I, I don't. Exercise has fallen off my bandwagon and uh, like actually really um, exhausting myself for a couple of days is my vibe. Nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Sounds good. I'm pretty sure we did Abel Tasman when the youngest mm. was four, so totally doable. That's ah, stuff. great. Yeah, yeah. I, I spoke to someone who did that whole mm. route with kids of a similar age just yeah. over several days. Lots of swims. Yeah. Oh, good and, idea. and DK, what are you going to do that's exciting this year in the space that we can plan ahead? Yeah, yeah it's a good frame, right? <laughs> I'd like to go back to the homeland. Mm. Oh, of course. It's been the longest time I've been away. And family and friends... Beckoning. Feel yeah. a lot more further away than they've ever have been. Well, they've been through a it's lot. Very right? sobering. There's that, and I've got a few people that you know really struggled over the last couple of years. You know, yeah. um, in personal relationships, businesses, whatever. Like we've all been challenged. Uh, that I'd like to go and give them a patented DK hug. Uh, my gran, who turns 99 in June. Oh, that's you special. Know, go and give her a little squeeze, yeah. soft squeeze, mm. bless her. <laughs> um, and just spend some time with her asking me all the inane, crazy questions that she does. Mm-hmm. And my folks, right? And my, I got another brother back in the UK as well, mm-hmm. who's got a little boy who I've seen bounce and grow on Skype in the last three years. Oh, I'm like, right. massive. And we have still a lovely little relationship every few months, jump on, and it's great. But it's real life has more bandwidth. Yeah. And in terms of just spending time with close friends and family and seeing some more of the UK every time I'm back, I've gone yeah. somewhere different and bounce around some of the uh, Celtic lands like Scotland and Ireland. And that sounds totally doable. I think so. How exciting. That's what I'm hopeful Did we cover everything? Great. I think so. Yeah. You like covered it? my list. Yeah, yeah. You happy? Time for some natural light. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Thank well, thanks you. Thanks for inviting me to you. Thank oh, the you. only thing I didn't find out is why you're Ford with an E. I was thinking, is this a French fancy mm. Ford Ranger? What is, what's Ford with an E? Uh, you can track an Fords with an E usually to Southland. Oh. Um, so Exotic. Our, um, our heritage is a mix of Irish and Scottish, but mm. um, hmm. uh, we, don't, we do have some names that we can track back on, on boats and things like that, but... Um, yeah, some of the more original settlers in Southland is generally what it marks out. And uh, Fords without an E, there's a lot of them around, but uh, yeah. not many of them in Southland. Yes. Mm. So nice. That's where my from. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you for listening to Creative Welly episode 30. 
This is, again, is the audio podcast of the video podcast. You can find us on creativewelly.com for all the subscription options there. Again, big shout out to my partner in crime, John O'Tucker, at Empire Films, the video producer, and makes everything look gorgeous. And also big thanks to David at Flashdog Studio for hosting us as well when we record our episodes. It's been great to have you with us. Please subscribe, tell your friends, and we'll see slash hear from you in the next Creative Welly episode. Keep having courageous conversations with bold humans.